morning, Christ the King. My name is Dawson Hunt, as I mentioned earlier, and I'm the assistant pastor here at the church, and it's my uh, privilege and honor to bring the word to you this morning. We're going to be in John chapter 8, if you have your Bible with you. The scripture is also printed in your bulletin, and as I mentioned a few weeks back, I'm slotted um, seven weeks over the course of the next couple months, so we're going to be looking at the seven I am statements of John uh, when I am in the pulpit. So we're going to be looking at the light of the world uh, this morning from John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. So we have to remember when we're in a series like this that we have to understand the context because we're not walking through a book of the Bible like we did with Esther verse by verse. So we need to understand first the broad context of John and then the narrow context of where we are in John. So if we remember, um, this is the fourth gospel in the New Testament. John was one of Jesus's uh, 12 disciples. And each of the gospel writers are going to have a different intent. They're telling very similar stories at times, but they're going to have a certain intent. They're writing to a certain audience. And the purpose of John's gospel is to show that eternal life comes through faith in the Son of God. It's to prove conclusively that Jesus was the Logos, the Word made flesh, the Son of God, and all who believe in Him will have eternal life. So that's the broad context of John, the Gospel of John. And we'll look at the immediate context of where we are in chapter 8. But let's first open the passage now. So John chapter 8, verses 12 through 20. It's in your bulletin, or if you have a uh, Bible, you can read along as well. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Jesus answered, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. But no one arrested him, because his hour had not yet come. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful that you have come to bring light into the darkness. That as you yourself, Jesus, proclaimed that you have come to the light of the world to bring healing, restoration, freedom from sin. And Father, we pray as we open your word this morning that you would be here with us, that you would allow our eyes and our hearts to see you in this passage, and that we would be humbled enough to know that we need you in every aspect. We need this light every day of our lives. And Father, we pray you be with us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So you know, we moved to El Paso uh, about 10 months ago, and 
we live over here on, uh, on the west side by uh, the church, but on occasion we will go to the east side. My wife works on that side, so sometimes we'll go visit her, or we'll go to Costco. The girls are playing soccer, so we'll go on that side of town at times. And as time has gone on, we'll, we'll be driving, driving down 10, and, you know, we see the big red X in Mexico. At first, you know, I have a 5- and 6-year-old. I think you guys mostly know that now. But they, they initially were very scared of this X that was in Mexico. They, it, if you think about it, next time you drive by, I want you to think about this story. It kind of looks like a transformer, right? Like it could come to life. I think that's what like, my kids thought initially. So I had to explain to them, no, it's, it's a building with great significance. And I went on to the story. So that kind of healed some of that, that uh, fear in them. But even now, even to this day, my daughters will ask me, I say, okay, we got to go, it's a 20-minute drive to where we're going. And they, they know enough now to know if we're driving 20 or 25 minutes, either we're going to Las Cruces or we're staying in El Paso to the other side. So one of my daughters, I'm not going to name names, but she always says, are, are, are we going over the mountain or are we going around the mountain? And then the next question is always, are we coming home like at dinner time or like at bedtime so what she's trying to get in her mind is am i going to see the x at night because now that's the big thing is that she cannot see the x at night it's still scary and we have not gotten past that that fear at all okay right so this is a funny story right but there's some significance for this that even my five and six year old daughter they understand that with darkness Things change. That, that even in the Bible, we, we see that darkness, it's attributed to sin and suffering. That a, a recent study even showed that violent crimes are most likely to happen at night. Often when people describe depression, the metaphor that is given is, is sinking into a black hole. There's a book on depression, When Darkness Seems My Closest Friend. Ultimately, darkness is a picture of sin. Psalm 82 says this, They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. So without Christ, all of us, you and me in the room and everyone else on this planet would be stuck in darkness. We are left in our sin. We are left in despair and without hope. Genesis 3 forward, that would have been our position. But in Genesis 3, at the same time, we see that there was a plan. He authored a plan in in Genesis 3 for Jesus to come, to take us out of the darkness He sends Jesus in our passage today. He claims, Jesus himself claims to be the light of the world. So the theme we're looking at today is Christ comes to bring light to the darkness. And I've put uh, the outline of my sermon in your bulletin. So if you want to jot some notes in certain um, areas, that's um, there for you. But the, the theme is Christ comes to bring light to the darkness. And so we really first have to understand darkness first to understand why Christ had to come as the light. So we're going to look at these first in darkness, and then we're going to look at the light secondly. So if you will, it's good to understand, remember I mentioned earlier, the immediate context of where we are in John chapter 8. So Jesus is claiming to be the light of the world. It's made against the background of um, 
the Jewish practice, the festival of tabernacles. So this is a ceremony that was of great feasting for an entire week. And the whole thing was done at night, and it was all candlelit. Beautiful thing. If you ever had a candlelit meal, you know there's an ambiance there that's very beautiful. And it, it went on for the entire week, and the ceremony has just ended. Maybe the last candle just burned out. And it got dark. And Jesus begins his discourse. What does he say? Look with me at verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So he begins, I am the light of the world. And this is not just an allusion only to the festival of tabernacles, but it is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy, that in the Old Testament, it was prophesied over and over again that a light would come. The biblical, a biblical scholar says this, Isaiah tells us that the servant of the Lord was appointed as a light to the Gentiles that he might bring salvation to the ends of the earth. If you remember a few weeks back, this idea of Jesus even saying, I am That is him saying, I am God. I am divine. If we remember in Exodus chapter 3, Moses is called out and he says, tell the people, I am who I am. When I first read that in English many years ago, I was like, I am who I am. What does that even mean? And then when I got to seminary, they helped me to understand, I am who I am means I am self-existing. I don't need anyone else. I am God creator of the universe so for for him jesus to be using i am language is to identify himself with yahweh remember in this text here he's speaking to the pharisees the jewish people okay so they would have known i am language it's like it's like big big deal for them right so he is saying i am so that's the first part but he's not only saying that he's like i am the light of the world so these people would have known that the prophet's spoke of a light coming so he's essentially saying i am god and i am the one who is sent i am the prophesied servant of the lord i am the messiah and how do the pharisees respond to this claim look with me at verse 13 so the pharisees said to him you are bearing witness about yourself your testimony is not true so this is harking back to John chapter 5, where he's, if Jesus himself says this, if I bear witness about myself, my witness is not true. So in this time, in a court of law, one witness couldn't come forward and, and say that somebody else did something wrong. They needed a witness plus one other person. So really, in, in, this, in this time, they needed two people to be witnesses for it to go through. But this isn't even this isn't even the court of law, right? But from the get-go, the Pharisees are treating Jesus as if, as, as if he's on trial. They're saying, prove yourself, Jesus. You're saying you are God. You are the light that has come. Prove yourself. In other words, Jesus, there's no reason for you to speak unless you have proof. The Pharisees are really wearing their hearts on their sleeves, right? They're showing their blindness to God. Think about, this is the Jewish people. They know who Yahweh is. They worship Him. They live for Him. But yet, Jesus is revealing 
this God that they say they worship, they're blind to him. They don't know him. The Pharisees, all they know is darkness. This is what he's saying. He's really contrasting here light with darkness. And darkness is the water that the Pharisees swim in. It is the waters of disbelief. Jesus answered in verse 14, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I am going. I'm sorry, I know where I came from and I know where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. So he says, even if I bear witness about myself, I am true. Why? Because I know where I came from. I came from God the Father, Yahweh, who you worship. And I know where I am going. I am going to God the Father, Yahweh, who you worship. He's essentially saying, I I hold a rank above all humans. I am 100% human, but I am also 100% God. So the... The court of law that you're holding me to, it doesn't apply to the Son of God. Calvin says this about this text. The Son of God holds a rank above the whole world, for he is not reckoned as belonging to the rank of men, but has received from his Father this privilege to reduce all men to obedience to him by a single word. In other words, Jesus is claiming to be in a completely different realm than the Pharisees. He is the Son of God in the flesh. In the beginning, Jesus was. John speaks from the beginning of his gospel as as Jesus is the divine logos, the Word of God. We see in the beginning of the Scriptures that the Word is power. It is action, and it is the Word of God, action in the flesh. He is above all rules and authorities in this world because he is part of the divine trinity who created it. But do the Pharisees see this? Verse 14, look, look with me here with the end of it, what they say. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. Jesus is really contrasting light with darkness here, right? And with light comes truth, comes knowledge, comes understanding of who God is. And in darkness, there is only disbelief. That's to the heart of this passage. The Pharisees, the religious elite, are claiming to know God, yet they are blind to him. They are stuck in the darkness. Verse 19 illustrates it again. Jesus says this, You know neither me nor my Father. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. If anyone in this time should have known Yahweh, it would have been these people right here, right? The Pharisees who basically live for everything that has to do with Yahweh. That's what they do in their lives. That's what they would say. But Jesus is revealing to them their own blindness to the God they say they worship. God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. And, God, and Jesus is saying the, the same thing here. But Jesus is showing the Pharisees that if you really knew Yahweh, if you knew God, You would know me, but you don't. You live in darkness. You live in disbelief. So all of us, without Christ's intervention, would live in this darkness. And I want to paint a picture for you with how the Bible describes darkness. 
there's four different categories, really. First, it's a realm of ignorance and folly. Psalm 82, we read this earlier. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk around in darkness. They're ignorant. They have, they have no vision for who God is. The realm of ignorance and folly, that's one. Second is realm of evil and fear. The opposite of righteousness is seen as living in the dark. Proverbs 4.19 says, The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. Third, the realm of bondage, misery, and death. Isaiah 8.22, Distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into the thick darkness. When speaking of the Israelites in captivity, Darkness is the common descriptor. That is usually what's, how it's described. Lastly, the realm of judgment and consignment to God's wrath. And the king said to the attendants, Bind him hand and foot and cast him into the outer darkness. And in the place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Those left in darkness will face ultimate judgment and the wrath of God one day. Richard Phillips, in his commentary, says this. Darkness consists, first, in a lack of knowledge, ignorance and folly and superstition. Second, moral dimension. Evil and fear. It is, third, experiential, bondage, misery, and death. Fourth, it is judicial, judgment and wrath. This is a fun topic. (laughs) It's not at all, right? This is a scary thing, a very scary thing. This is not at all a light topic. We can't come here and say, oh, he's the light of the world. We think of that kind of lightly, but we have to understand darkness is death. It is wrath. That's why Jesus has come, because that's what we needed. Without him, we are all left in the darkness. We are left in the realm of ignorance, evil, misery, judgment, wrath. One of the, I read a story when I was preparing for this, and about a woman. Her name is Rose Crawford. She was 50 years old. She has been blind her entire life. A, a, a physician approached her and said, you know, we have this surgery that can heal your blindness. And she had the surgery and it was successful. And she said this, I just can't believe it. As the doctor lifted the bandages from her eyes, she wept When for the first time in her life, a dazzling and beautiful world of form and color greeted her eyes and she could see for the first time. The tragedy of the story is that this could have happened 20 years earlier. She didn't know that the surgery was possible for 20 years. The operation could have restored her vision at age 30. The doctor said about this that she just figured there was nothing that could be done about her condition. Much of her life could have been different. Isn't this the same for many people around us today? They're walking around in darkness, not understanding that things could be different. And maybe some do. Maybe some know Jesus, the name of Jesus, And they don't care. They're content with their life in the darkness. I want us to think about the people in El Paso, specifically this morning. 
They shop at our same grocery stores. They work in our office buildings. They live on our blocks. People we see every day living in darkness. I read up on the statistics of El Paso this week. This is what I found. 12%, 12 12.8% are Protestant. 44.9% are Catholic, which equates to 99,000 people being Protestant and 345,000 being Catholic. That's 338,000 people that claim no religious affiliation at all in our city. Okay, let's, say, let's just say for a moment that our brothers and sisters, the Catholic Church, and all of our brothers and sisters in the Protestant Church, 100% of them are believers. Okay, we know that's not the truth. Like we know that the scripture tells us that the vi- that's why there's a difference between the visible church who, who have been baptized, who go to church, and the invisible who truly believe. Before this, let's just say 100% of them do believe and are saved. That means that 338,000 people in our city are walking around doomed for the things that I just explained to you about what darkness holds. This reality should torment our hearts. If you're like me, I never even think about this. I rarely think about this. I go on in my, my daily life, living, I feel like, as, as um, closely to the Lord as I can, but this does not burden me often. And I want us to see this. I want us to see that w- we need to have a burden for the lost. We need to have a burden for the neighborhood that we can see from right here. I can see right there that there are thousands of people that are walking in darkness. You know, Reformed theology, it, it, it teaches a really high view of God's sovereignty, right? We know that God is the author and perfecter of our salvation, that we bring nothing to the table except for sin when it comes to salvation, right? That we are saved By faith alone in Jesus, we merit nothing when it comes to salvation. But at the same time, I feel like in our camp, we often neglect the doctrine of the church's role in salvation. As God's people, we have been saved by faith through Christ alone, but that is not the end to our salvation. We are always saved with a purpose. And what is it? From Genesis 12 forward, we see that we are saved for the glory of God and the blessing of the nations. We are not saved just to save ourselves. We are saved to proclaim the goodness of God to other people. Michael Goheen in his book, A Light to the Nation, says this. A church, the church is the locust of God's renewing work. And it's the people that are first to experience God's salvation, but not for themselves alone. The church is called to be an agent or instrument of redemption in the midst of the world and for the sake of the world, chosen so that it might invite others into the covenant blessings it experiences. Christians are a come and join us people whose very lives point to the culmination of history, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. So for honest... Would we say that that's who we are at Christ the King? If you're honest, individually, do you see yourselves as 
an instrument of redemption in every part of your life. You know, thinking through what it looks like to come out of COVID and minister to each other and our neighborhood. This is where our burden is, to reach the lost, right? To reach out into the community. I, I, I live two miles from here. I know that because this, the church is on my running route. I run from my house, past the church, through this neighborhood, and the first time I did it, I was like, look at all these houses. Look at all these people. And then I think about this week when I came to this text and I read the statistics and I said, 338,000 people. That means all these people I'm running past. Darkness. Now, we're thinking about moving the church in a direction that way, right? That we're looking, thinking about how do we engage the world? How do we engage El Paso? How do we serve the city so that we can bring the light of Jesus into the darkness? But it doesn't only have to start here with programming and ministries at the church. Like We, we know that every one of Jesus' disciples are called to be instruments of redemption, that you are to bring restoration, healing to every avenue that we go into. That means families, workplaces, schools, friendships, neighborhoods. Are, we are sent as missionaries into the city. That is God's, calls, God's call for his disciples. That we are sanctioned by God, given the Holy Spirit's power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the power that we are given to go out into the city. What news are we to give to the city? So let's look next to how Jesus describes himself as the light of the world. Look with me again at verse 12. It says this, Again, Jesus said to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What a beautiful way for him to describe himself after we just heard that description of darkness. We are all blind by nature, but a remedy has been offered for our blindness. We can be freed and rescued from our darkness and made partakers of the true light. He says we will never walk in darkness By turning from our sin and rebellion and following Jesus, you receive the light of life. And many in this room today, the majority of you guys have received this. The beautiful thing is that this, Jesus comes as the light, what does it say in the passage? Light of the world. It's not just for certain people, right? It's not for the good, the beautiful, the righteous, the, the ones that go to church every Sunday. It's not just for those people, right? Like, it's for everyone. This is for the Jew, the Gentile, the learned, the ignorant, the people of esteem, the common person. Everyone. Recently I heard a pastor say, this is not a country club for righteous people. It is a hospital for sinners. Because the gospel is for everyone. Jesus is for all. He says, follow me and you will not walk in darkness. No matter who you are, you will have the light of life. And that is the message that we proclaim to El Paso. That we 
have the light of life, not in anything that we have done, but only in what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he has done for us. Remember, this passage is coming in the context of the Festival of Tabernacles. Okay, it's also called the Festival of Lights, and I didn't mention this earlier, but this festival actually recalled the pillar of fire that guided and protected the people of God in the wilderness. Exodus 13 says this, And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them the light that they may travel by day and by night. So the people of God in Exodus followed the pillar of fire in the night. The pillar of fire moved. They moved with him. This is, the, this is what it's saying. This is how we're to follow Jesus. If he moves, we move. Where he goes, we are called to go. So what does that look like for us? It means the movement of life for us, it revolves around God. It revolve, revolves around who he is. Luke 9 says this, And he said to them all, If anyone would come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Practically, that's what it looks like. Daily laying down your own preferences and desires and comforts for the good of others. He is our light. We joyfully follow him, knowing that he will always guide and protect us. Verses 15 through 16, let's look at this together. It says this, You judge according to the flesh, I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true, for it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. So he's saying that the the Pharisees are judging according to the flesh. And we can take flesh in two different ways. It's used in two different ways. So to understand in the context, what is he saying? Flesh could mean you're judging somebody according to the outward appearance, to their flesh, what they look like on the outside. The second way, you're judging someone according to the flesh, meaning sin. Flesh and sin are often used as um, synonyms in the New Testament. So what he is actually saying here, I think that he's actually pitting judging with the Spirit against judging in sin. So he's telling the the Pharisees, you don't have the Spirit. You have no ability to judge anyone because it is only through the Spirit's power that you can truly judge who a person is. Now I think it needs to be addressed that the, the passage does say, Jesus says, I judge no one. This is why proof texting is really dangerous, right? Because we could proof text this and say, oh, Jesus isn't going to judge anyone. You don't have to change. You can live in your sin. He he judges no one. But we have to understand in the context, what he's saying is that he didn't come in the first century to judge. He came to bring freedom. Freedom. But the truth is that he will come a second time. And that's when the judgment will come. There will be a time of judgment. It is not now. He's saying, this is not the, not, this is not the time of judgment. This is the time for you to be free from your sin. I'm coming to bring redemption, not condemnation, but freedom. He says, follow me that you may have this freedom. Verse 17 through 19 say this, in your law, It is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, 
and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Remember earlier, the Pharisees were saying that your testimony is not true because it's only you that's saying it. There's no one backing up your story. We need two people to really believe it. But from the beginning, it's like, I'm God. That doesn't apply to me. But here, here, he says, oh, but actually, according to your law, it is true. Because Jesus insists that he's not the lone witness. He says, the Father who sent me bears witness about me. And the the thing is that Jesus had many witnesses. God the Father wasn't the only one. Think about John the Baptist, his own works, the prophecies that he fulfilled. But he chooses the Father as his second witness. Why? Because it was his Father who sent him, and it is his Father who he is going to. His Father, the Lord God Almighty, His word carries absolute authority. That's what he's telling the Pharisees. You're God. (laughs) Yahweh, that's who sent me. So this light metaphor, we we talked about how how darkness is, is seen in the scriptures. And we can do the same thing with light as we conclude. The light metaphor is really steeped in Old Testament. We saw earlier that the, the light of the glory and presence of God led the people through the wilderness in Exodus. The people of God, the Israelites, were trained to sing, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Psalm 119 says, The word of God is a light to guide the path of those who cherish instruction. Psalm 44 speaks of light as Yahweh in action. Isn't that beautiful? God in action is light. And Jesus said, that's me. I am God in action. Oh, so good. Isaiah 60 speaks of the Lord himself being the light to his people in the days to come. Lastly, Zechariah promises continual light on the day, on the last day. This is what Jesus is claiming to be, the light of the world, the glory and presence of God in the flesh. One writer describes the I am statements as the pocket guide to understanding Jesus. And I think that's, that's so good that we can hang on to these things as, as Jesus as the light that breaks into the darkness. It will transform our lives. So I would encourage you, let's turn to Jesus. Turn away from the darkness. Let us follow him and call others to, to do the same for their good and for the glory of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, what a beautiful, beautiful passage that we get to read. That we see the deep darkness, a hole that we can never get out of. That is just covered in evil, death, torment, wrath. And yet, you offered, you authored a plan to bring us out, to bring light. And the plan meant sending your own son to pay the penalty, to live the perfect life, to pay the penalty, to die on our behalf. Father, we pray that we would understand our own darkness that we were in prior to you. And Lord, that that would spur us on to bring light to the city of El Paso. 
Father, we need you. We need you to humble us day by day by day to remember this, that we can get so comfortable, that we can get so complacent, that our Christianity can all become about all of us and not about being a blessing to others. And Father, we plead that you would burden us with that. Bring redemption, restoration, renewal, light to the city of El Paso and use the churches here as instruments of redemption for the good of the city and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.